Part One of History of Farming in Ontario by C. C. James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Esther. History of Farming in Ontario by C. C. James. Reprinted from Canada in its provinces. A History of the Canadian People and Their Institutions by 100 Associates. Edited by Adam Short and A. G. Doughty. History of Farming, the Land, and the People. Part 1. From the most southern point of Ontario, on Lake Erie, near the 42nd parallel of latitude, to Moose Factory on James Bay, the distance is about 750 miles. From the eastern boundary on the Ottawa and St. Lawrence Rivers to Kenora at the Manitoba boundary, the distance is about 1,000 miles. The area lying within these extremes is about 220,000 square miles. In 1912, a northern addition of over 100,000 square miles was made to the surface area of the province, but it is doubtful whether the agricultural lands will thereby be increased. Of this large area, about 25 million acres are occupied and assessed, including farmlands and town and city sites. It will be seen, therefore, that only a small fraction of the province has as yet been occupied. Practically all the occupied area lies south of a line drawn through Montreal, Ottawa, and Sault Ste. Marie, and it forms part of the great productive zone of the continent. The next point to be noted is the irregularity of the boundary line, the greater portion of which is water, Lakes Superior, Huron, Erie, Ontario, the St. Lawrence River, the Ottawa River, James Bay, and Hudson Bay. The modifying effect of great bodies of water must be considered in studying the agricultural possibilities of Ontario. Across this great area of irregular outline, there passes a branch of the Archaean rocks, running in a northwestern direction and forming a watershed, which turns some of the streams to Hudson Bay and the others to the St. Lawrence system. An undulating surface has resulted more or less filled with lakes and almost lavishly supplied with streams, which are of prime importance for agricultural life and of incalculable value for commercial purposes. To these old rocks which form the backbone of the province may be traced the origin of the large stretches of rich soil with which the province abounds. An examination of the map and even a limited knowledge of the geological history of the province will lead to the conclusion that in Ontario there must be a wide range in nature and composition of the soils, and a great variety in the climatic conditions. These conditions exist, and they result in a varied natural production. In the extreme southwestern section, plants of semi-tropical nature were to be found in the early days in luxurious growth, while in the extreme north, spruce, somewhat stunted in size and toughened in fiber, are still to be found in vast forests. It is with the southern section, that lying south of the Laurentian rocks, that our story is mainly concerned, for the occupation and exploitation of the Northland is a matter only of recent date. Nature provided conditions for a diversified agriculture. It is to such a land that, for over a hundred years, people of different nationalities, with their varied trainings and inclinations, have been coming to make their homes. We may expect, therefore, to find a great diversity in the agricultural growth of various sections, due partly to the variety of natural conditions, 
and partly to the varied agricultural training of the settlers in their homelands. Early Settlement, 1783 to 1816. Originally, this province was covered with forest, varied and extensive, and was valued only for its game. The hunter and trapper was the pioneer. To protect and assist him, fortified posts were constructed at commanding points along the great waterways. In the immediate vicinity of these posts, agriculture, crude in its nature and restricted in its area, had its beginning. It was into this wooded wilderness that the United Empire Loyalists, numbering in all approximately 10,000 people, came in the latter part of the 18th century. Footnote 1. See Pioneer Settlements in this section. They were a people of varied origins, Highland Scottish, German, Dutch, Iris Palatine, French Huguenot, English. Most of them had lived on farms in New York State, and therefore brought with them some knowledge and experience that stood them in good stead in their arduous work of making new homes in a land that was heavily wooded. In the year 1783, prospectors were sent into western Quebec, the region lying west of the Ottawa River, and selections were made for them in four districts, along the St. Lawrence, opposite Fort Oswegatchie, around the Bay of Quinte, above Fort Cataraqui, in the Niagara Peninsula, opposite Fort Niagara, and in the southwestern section within reach of Fort Detroit. Two reasons determined these locations. First, the necessity of being located on the waterfront, as lake and river were the only highways available, and secondly, the advisability of being within the protection of a fortified post. The dependence of the settlers upon the military will be realized when we remember that they had neither implements nor seed grain. In fact, they were dependent at first upon the government stores for their food. It is difficult at the present time to realize the hardships and appreciate the conditions under which these United Empire Loyalist settlers began life in the forest of 1784. Having been assigned their lots and supplied with a few implements, they began their work of making small clearings and the erection of rude log-houses and barns. Among the stumps they sowed the small quantities of wheat, oats, and potatoes that were furnished them from the government stores. Cattle were for many years few in number, and the settler, to supply his family with food and clothing, was compelled to add hunting and trapping to his occupation of felling the trees. Gradually the clearings became larger, and the area sown increased in size. The trails were improved, and took on the semblance of roads, but the waterways continued to be the principal avenues of communication. In each of the four districts, the government erected mills to grind the grain for the settlers. These were known as the King's Mills. Water-powered mills were located near Kingston, at Gananoque, at Napanee, and on the Niagara River. The mill on the Detroit was run by wind power. An important event in the early years was when the head of the family set out for the mill with his bag of wheat on his back, or in his canoe, and returned in two or three days, perhaps in a week, with a small supply of flour. In the early days there was no wheat for export. The question then may be asked, was there anything to market? Yes, as the development went on, the settlers found a market for two surplus products, timber and potash. The larger pine trees were hewn into timber and floated down the streams to some convenient point where they were collected into rafts, which were taken down the St. Lawrence to Montreal and Quebec. 
black salt or crude potash was obtained by concentrating the ashes that resulted from burning the brush and trees that were not suitable for timber. For the first thirty years of the new settlements, the chief concern of the people was the clearing of their land, the increasing of their field crops, and the improving of their homes and furnishings. It was slow going, and had it not been for government assistance, progress and even maintenance of life would have been impossible. That was the heroic age of Upper Canada, the period of foundation laying in the province. Farming was the main occupation, and men, women, and children shared the burdens in the forest, in the field, and in the home. Roads were few and poorly built, except the three great military roads planned by Lieutenant Governor Simcoe, running east, west, and north from the town of York. Social intercourse was of a limited nature. Here and there a school was formed when a competent teacher could be secured. Church services were held once a month, on which occasions the missionary preacher rode into the district on horseback. Perhaps once or twice in the summer the weary postman with his pack on his back arrived at the isolated farmhouses to leave a letter on which heavy toll had to be collected. Progress was slow in those days, but after thirty years fair hope of an agricultural country was beginning to dawn upon the people when the War of 1812 broke out. By this time the population of the province had increased to about 80,000. During this first thirty years very little had been done in the way of stimulating public interest in agricultural work. Conditions were not favorable to organization. The town meeting was concerned mainly with the question of the height of fences and regulations as to stock running at large. One attempt, however, was made which should be noted. Lieutenant Governor Simcoe took charge of affairs early in 1792 and immediately after the close of the first session of the legislature at Newark, Niagara, in the autumn of that year, organized an agricultural society at the headquarters which met occasionally to discuss agricultural questions. There are no records to show whether social intercourse or practical agricultural matters formed the main business. The struggle for existence was too exacting, and the conditions were not yet favorable for organization to advance general agricultural matters. When the War of 1812 broke out, the clearings of the original settlers had been extended, and some of the loyalists still lived, grown gray with time and hardened by the rough life of the backwoods. Their sons, many of whom had faint recollections of their early homes, across the line had grown up in an atmosphere of strictest loyalty to the British crown, and had put in long years in clearing the farms on which they lived, and adding such comforts to their houses that to them, perhaps as to no other generation, their homes meant everything in life. The summons came to help to defend those homes and their province. For three years the agricultural growth received a severe check. Fathers and sons took their turn in going to the front. The cultivation of the fields, the sowing and the harvesting of the crops fell largely to the lot of the mothers and the daughters left at home. But they were equal to it. In those days the women were trained to help in the work of the fields. They did men's work willingly and well. In many cases they had to continue their heroic work after the close of the war until their surviving boys were grown to years of manhood, for many husbands and sons went to the front never to return. A Period of Expansion, 1816-46 to 46. 
the close of the war saw a province that had been checked at a time of vigorous growth now more or less impoverished and in some sections devastated this was however but the gloomy outlook before a period of rapid expansion in eighteen sixteen on the close of the napoleonic wars in europe large numbers of troops were disbanded and for these new homes and new occupations had to be found then began the first emigration from britain overseas to upper canada all over the british isles little groups were forming of old soldiers reunited to their families a few household furnishings were packed a supply of provisions laid in a sailing vessel chartered and the trek began across the atlantic the emigrants sailed from many ports of england scotland and ireland sometimes the trip was made in three or four weeks but often through contrary winds or rough weather three or four months passed before the vessel sailed up the st lawrence and landed the newcomers at montreal hardly half of their difficulties were then overcome or half of their dangers passed if they were to find their new locations by land they must walk or travel by slow ox-cart if they journeyed by water they must make their way up the st lawrence by open boat surmounting the many rapids in succession poling the boats pulling against the stream at times helping to carry heavy loads over the portages their new homes in the backwoods were in townships in the rear of those settled by the loyalists or in unoccupied areas on the lake fronts between the four districts referred to as having been taken up by the loyalists then began the settlements along the north shore of lake ontario and of lake erie and the population moved forward steadily in eighteen sixteen the population of the province was approximately one hundred thousand by eighteen twenty six according to returns made to the government it had increased to a hundred and sixty six thousand in eighteen thirty six it was three hundred and seventy four thousand and in eighteen forty one it was four hundred and fifty six thousand the great majority of these people of course lived upon the land the towns being comparatively small and the villages were composed largely of people engaged in agricultural work this peaceful british invasion contributed a new element to the province and added still further to the variety of people in one township could be found a group of english settlers most of whom came from a southern county of england nearby a township peopled by scottish lowlanders and not far away a colony of north ireland farmers or perhaps a settlement composed entirely of people from the vicinity of cork or limerick these british settlers brought new lines of life new plans for houses and barns new methods of cultivation new varieties of seed and what was perhaps of most influence upon the agricultural life of the province new kinds of livestock even to this day can be seen traces of the differences in construction of buildings introduced by the different nationalities that came as pioneers into the various sections of the province the french canadian constructed his buildings with long steep roofs the englishman followed his home plan of many small low outbuildings with doors somewhat rounded at the top the german and dutch settler built big barns with their capacious mouths these latter have become the type now generally followed the main improvement in later years being the raising of the frames upon stone foundations so as to provide accommodation for livestock in the basement it would be interesting and profitable to study carefully 
the different localities to determine what elements have contributed to the peculiar agricultural characteristics of the present day. In this connection, the language also might be investigated. For instance, to the early Dutch farmers of Upper Canada, we owe such common words as stoop, bush, boss, span. To the early British settlers, these were foreign words. When the overseas settlers came up the St. Lawrence, they were transported from Montreal, either by bateau or by Durham boat. Special reference may be made to the livestock introduced by the British settlers. This was one of the most important elements in the expansion and permanent development of the agriculture of the province. The British Isles have long been noted for their purebred stock. In no other part of the world have so many varieties been originated and improved. In horses, there are the Clydesdale, the Shire, the Thoroughbred, and the Hackney. In cattle, Shorthorns, Herefords, Ayrshires, Devon, and the dairy breeds of Jersey and Guernsey. In sheep, Southdown, Shropshires, Leicesters. In swine, Berkshires and Yorkshires. Many other breeds might be added to these. Poultry and dogs also might be referred to. The Britisher has been noted for his love of livestock. He has been trained to their care. His agricultural methods have been ordered to provide food suitable for their wants, and he has been careful to observe the lines of breeding so as to improve their quality. In the earliest period of the settlement of the province, livestock was not numerous, and the quality was not of the best. Whatever was to be found on the farms came mainly from the United States and was of inferior type. The means of bringing in horses, cattle, and sheep were limited. The result was that field work at the time was largely done by hand labor. Hunting and fishing helped to supply the table with food that today we obtain from the butcher. When the Britisher came across the Atlantic, he brought to Upper Canada his love for livestock with his knowledge how to breed and care for the same. The result was seen in the rapid increase in the number of horses, cattle, sheep, and swine, and the placing of the agriculture of the province on a firm basis for future growth. By 1830, the population had grown to about 213,000, practically all located on the land. In that year, there were only five towns of a thousand or over, namely Kingston, 3,587, York, or Toronto, 2,860, London, including the township, 2,415, Hamilton, including the township, 2,013, and Brockville, 1,130. The returns to the government show that of the 4,018,385 acres occupied, 773,727 were under cultivation. On the farms were to be found 30,776 horses, 33,517 oxen, 80,892 milk cows, and 32,537 young cattle. It is interesting to note that oxen, so useful in clearing the land and in doing heavy work, were more numerous than horses. Oxen were hardier than horses. They could forage for themselves and live on rough food, and when disabled, could be converted into food. They thus played a very important part in the pioneer life. 
There were no improved farm implements in those days. The plough, the spade, the hoe, the fork, the sickle, the hook, the cradle, and the rake, implements that had been the husbandman's equipment for centuries, completed the list. With these the farmer cultivated his lands and gathered his crops. With two stout hickory poles joined together at the end with tough leather thongs, a flail was made with which he threshed out his grain on the floor of his barn. The earliest pioneers raised some flax, and from the fiber made coarse linen fabrics, supplementing these by skins of wild animals and the hides of cattle. With the introduction of sheep by the British settlers, wool became an important product, and homespun garments provided additional clothing for all the members of the family. Seeds of various fruit trees were planted, and by 1830 the products of these seedlings supplemented the wild plums and cherries of the woods, and the wild raspberries that sprang up in abundance in the clearings and slashes. By this time every farm had one or more milk cows, and the farmer's table was supplied with fresh milk, butter, and homemade cheese. As the first half-century of the province was drawing to its close, some of the comforts of home began to be realized by the farming community. The isolation of the former period disappeared as roads of communication were opened up and extended. Here and there societies were formed for the exhibition of the products of the farm and for friendly competitions. So important were these societies, becoming in the life of the whole community that in 1830 the government gave them recognition and provided an annual grant to assist them in their work. This is an important event in agricultural history, for it marks the beginning of government assistance to the agricultural industry. Between 1820 and 1830, probably not more than half a dozen agricultural societies were organized. Some records of such were preserved at York, Kingston, and in the Newcastle district. From the record of the country of Northumberland Agricultural Society, it is learned that its first show was held in the public square of the village of Colburn on October 19, 1828, when premiums were awarded, amounting in all to $77. There were 14 prizes for livestock, two prizes for cheese, two for field rollers, and two for essays on the culture of wheat. The first prize essay for which the winner received $5, was printed for distribution. The prize list was limited in range, but it shows how this new settlement, formed largely by British settlers since 1816, was giving particular attention to the encouragement of livestock. A short quotation from the prize essay as to the best method of clearing the land for wheat should be found of interest. As a great part of our country is yet in a wilderness state, and quite a share of the wheat brought to our markets is reared on new land, I deem it important that our enterprising young men who are clearing away the forest should know how to profit by their hard labor. Let the underwood be cut in the autumn before the leaves fall, and the large timber in the winter or early in the spring. This will ensure a good burn, which is the first thing requisite for a good crop. Do your logging in the month of June, and if you wish to make money, do it before you burn your brush and save the ashes. These will more than half pay for your clearing the land, and by burning at this season you will attract a drove of cattle about you that will destroy all sprouts which may be growing. Do not leave more than four trees on an acre, 
and girdled these trees in the full moon of March, and they will never leaf again. Thus you may have your land prepared for the seed before harvest. The Act of 1830 provided a grant of a hundred pounds for a society in each district, upon condition that the members subscribe and pay in at least fifty pounds and in the case of a society being organized in each county, the amount was to be equally divided among the societies. The condition of making the grant was set forth in the Act as follows, quote, When any agricultural society, for the purpose of importing valuable livestock, grain, grass seed, useful implements, or whatever else might conduce to the improvement of agriculture in this province, unquote, etc., as a result of this substantial assistance by the government, agricultural societies increased in number and their influence in assisting in the improvement of the livestock and the bringing of new implements to the attention of farmers was most marked. Horses, sheep, and milk cows increased rapidly. Purebred cattle now began to receive some attention. The first record of importation is the bringing of a short-horn bull and a cow from New York State in 1831 by Robert Arnold of St. Catharines. In 1833, Roland Wingfield, an Englishman farming near Guelph, brought a small herd of choice animals across the ocean, landed them at Montreal, took them to Hamilton by way of the Ottawa River, the Rideau Canal, and Lake Ontario, and then drove them on foot to Wellington County. The Honorable Adam Ferguson of Woodhill followed two or three years later with a similar importation. End of Part 1